Thanks so much, Mike. Someone asked you the question, what's it like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What would you say? The question's not, why are you a Christian? Nor is it, why should I become a Christian? The question is, what's it like? What's it like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, last week in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, we saw how Jesus opened the eyes of a man born blind who was utterly incapable of healing himself. We saw how that was a picture of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, uh, of what he does for people like you and me, how he creatively works in them to give true sight to those in darkness. But at the end of the passage, the wonderful miracle gave way to confusion and confrontation. The man's neighbors and others who'd been seen uh, seen him begging his whole life were utterly confounded by what happened. Verse 8, isn't that the man who used to sit and beg? Yeah, it is, some claimed. No, it isn't, said others. He only looks like him. Can you imagine what it's like for people to debate in front of you whether you are you? <laughs> Extraordinary. I am the man, he says in verse 9. How then were your eyes opened? Well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I washed, I went and washed, and then I could see. Really, they said. Where is this man? I don't know, he said. I wonder how he said that. The the miracle was wonderful and, and all, but... But where is Jesus? Perhaps you feel a bit like that about your own Christian life. Like Jesus was there at the beginning in that wonderful opening of your spiritual sight, but now he seems far away, perhaps somewhere else entirely. Well, it's there that we pick up this story with the man saying, I don't know where Jesus is. The people are unable to resolve their dilemma about how the man they know to be blind, can now see. And so they take him to the equivalent of um, the court of popular opinion. They take him to the Pharisees, the group of religious leaders. They're the significant figures in the community, the ones who supposedly know things, um, the ones who you might expect to be invited to the BBC breakfast sofa and to offer their opinion. Surely they can provide the commentary on the events. They're the ones in the know. But what follows is not so much a BBC breakfast conversation as an interrogation. It has the feel of an interview stage on on The Apprentice, if you watch that show. Um, It's a bit of a guilty pleasure of ours when it's on. Um, The penultimate round where the the candidates are interviewed by the likes of Claude Littner and and others. And, And they tear The Apprentice candidates to shreds about their business proposals. Well, the Pharisees act as the interviewers, the interrogators, the judges, even, of all that's happened. He's not supposed to be on trial, but they treat the man who was born blind a bit like a prisoner. And what follows is a series of exchanges told through the lenses of the Pharisees' imaginary courtroom. Like The Apprentice, we're going to watch it unfold from two different angles. First, we'll look at it 
Um, we'll look at it through the Pharisees. Uh, look at the Pharisees. And then we'll look at the man born blind. And as we do, what we'll see is that the increasing blindness and hostility of the Pharisees will teach us about the nature of sin. But we'll also see the expanding sight and the courage of the man born blind will show us what it's really like, how it feels to be a disciple. So John 9, 13 to 34 displays for us the nature of sin and the nature of discipleship. First, the nature of sin. Now, the problem for the Pharisees, at least on the surface, is that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And that's a surprise. We get that here. We haven't actually had that mentioned at this point in John 9. And suddenly it, it crops up. The Sabbath is a holy day commanded by God for the people to rest. Verse 14. Now, the day on which Jesus opened the, man's, uh, uh, the blind man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, verse 15, the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. The thing we have to understand about the Pharisees is that they felt they were custodians of the Sabbath. They considered themselves experts in the law and the disciples of Moses, and they were ready to investigate any departure from the norm, from their customs. That's nothing new, is it? Remember in John chapter 5, when Jesus healed the man at the pool, um, there the religious leaders questioned the healed man for carrying his mat on the Sabbath after getting healed. In both cases, the Pharisees became agitated and angry when something seemingly good happened. The question is, why? Well, it's not just that they're sticklers for the rules, like the parking attendant who waits by your car until the moment the meter runs out. I, I actually saw a news story this last week about a man from Romford who was giving a, given a parking ticket um, when his car was um, underwater after some extreme flooding. So when, when the waters um, subsided, he discovered a parking ticket on his window. Thankfully, the council have agreed to um, cancel the fine. So the, the Pharisees aren't like that. Rather, it's, it's because of something far more serious. Jesus challenged their authority as those in the know. The Sabbath thing was a smokescreen. The miracle was a challenge to their self-importance. So when they say in verse 16, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. What they mean is Jesus can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath in our way. We're the arbiters of God's truth and law. The real issue is that they simply don't want anyone to determine what's right and wrong for them. Some of them are divided initially, verse 17. But as the passage unfolds, they become more and more resistant. So they disbelieve what happened, verse 18. They seek to discredit the miracle, saying to the man's parents in verse 19, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Then they distance themselves from Jesus, deciding that anyone who associates with him will be expelled from the synagogue, verse 22. They deny his authority as the Messiah. And as a result, 
They delude themselves and others about what's right in front of them. Their questioning is completely illogical. And when they don't get the answer they want, they just become more aggressive. In desperation, they subpoena the, the, the guy's parents and they badger him. But his parents are too scared to provide the evidence against Jesus they're looking for, so they resort to bullying tactics. They try to lead the man into giving them the answer they want. Verse 24, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. They're no longer just asking questions. They're declaring things about Jesus in the form of judgments. We know. Well, do they? They're meant to be the ones in the know. But what do they know? The reality is they don't know anything. The blind man even mocks them for that in verse 30. Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And that's the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. <clears throat> Excuse me. At least with physical blindness, you know that you're blind. But when you're spiritually blind, as the Pharisees clear, clearly are, you don't even know it. They've declared Jesus to be a sinner, and at the same time, they are increasingly deluded to the depths of their own self-importance and self-righteousness. And that is what sin is like. Because sin is darkness, the absence of light, sin is delusional. In sin, we are blind to the reality about ourselves and blind to the reality about God, which, by the way, can take many, many different forms. So you can sin by breaking all of the moral commands of God in the pursuit of self-pleasure or self-satisfaction or whatever. Or you can sin in a deeply religious way, acting as if your life requires God to bless you and answer the prayers the way you want. That's what the Pharisees did. They wanted Jesus to submit to them, to fall in line. The point is, whoever you are, the further you move away from the light, the more blind you become. What's more, if you're a Christian, there will be times when you will be pressed like the man born blind. You'll be made to think that you're the one who's not seeing the world properly, that you're blinkered and narrow-minded, that if only you could break out of that, well, then you'd really see, then you'd be free. The truth is, again, it's sin that is imprisoning. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin dehumanizes us. On the other hand, when God opens our eyes, far from making us less human, we're shown more and more of what it means to be human. Which leads us from the topic of sin to our second theme this morning, the nature of discipleship. One of the stars of England's run to the European Championship final um, is Raheem Sterling. And if they win tonight, there's talk about a knighthood for him, as well as Gareth Southgate, the manager. It will be the pinnacle of a, of a glittering career so far. But things haven't always been easy for Raheem Sterling. His father was tragically murdered when he was just two years of age. That, he says, shaped his whole life. And he's been facing adversity and criticism 
Ever since, even in the weeks leading up to the tournament, people were questioning his place in the side. But those things have propelled him as a player. And he's now got the chance to bring football home for the first time since 1966. Isn't it fascinating that as the Pharisees become more and more hostile to the man in their blindness towards Jesus, as they close their eyes and scrunch up um, uh, them up to the reality of what's right in front of them, the man's vision actually clarifies. It opens up more and more. Look how he grows in his sight as their pressure increases. At first, his answers um, seem very simple. Verse 15, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. When pressed in verse 17, although his vision is still blurry, he begins to recognize something special about Jesus. He's a prophet. In verse 25, he's forced to defend Jesus against the authorities. Remember, he's not educated. He's, he's no expert. He's just a poor beggar. He should know nothing in the cultural uh, landscape that they're in. And yet, he has the confidence to say, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then he gets really bold, uh, cheeky, we might even say. In response to their bullying tactics, the man born blind rebukes the Pharisees. Verse 27, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? The man, once a blind outcast, now stands up to these highly respected, trained religious experts, and he testifies about the truth of Jesus, calling himself a disciple. Finally, in verses 30 to 33, he not only testifies about Jesus' work in his own life, but challenges the Pharisees' misperceptions about Jesus, how his vision and his confidence has grown. It is truly remarkable. But also, remarkably, uh, it seems to have increased, not despite of, but because of the pressure he faced You'd expect it to be the opposite, wouldn't you? You'd expect you know, that as the pressure increases, he would sort of fall away and just get you know, trodden down. Yet like, a, like gold in a furnace, the hotter it gets, the brighter the man becomes. Now, why is that? This is where I'd like to turn back to last week's passage briefly, specifically to verses 5 to 7. There Jesus says, While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, i.e. the light of life, the eternal light, has been sent into creation to enlighten people in the dark. Verse 6, After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Remember, that's a picture of the creator forming and working with his clay, his creation. And then we read this in verse 7. Go, Jesus told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went home and washed and came home seeing. The one sent by the father sends the man to a pool called sent. 
Now, I know because you've told me that some of you have been uh, wrestling with and reflecting on that this past week. What's the significance of that? The one sent by the Father sends the man to the pool called Sent. Well, is it not to show us how having had his eyes opened by Jesus, the man is now sent to share in the mission of Jesus, the sent one? How does that connect with our passage this morning? Well, simply put, because our passage displays how the man, as he shares in Jesus' life and mission, now gets what Jesus gets. Little did the man know how much his experience would foreshadow the experience of the one he now follows. You see, like the blind man, Jesus will soon face intense interrogation and pressure and threats. Like the blind man, Jesus will, abandon, will be abandoned by those closest to him. And like the blind man in verse 34, Jesus will be cast out as he's crucified on that hill outside the city. There's a reason this chapter takes up so much space in, in John's gospel, how this unnamed man is so significant in uh, what's being presented. It provides a picture of what it looks like and feels like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. All those who are joined to Jesus Christ will get what he gets. As we saw last, last time, that's a wonderful privilege. As our eyes are open to see the reality of God's love and grace towards us in Christ. But as we share in his light, it also means that we'll experience the same reaction from those who want to disbelieve, discredit, deny, and distance themselves from Jesus. Not necessarily to the same degree all the time, yet if you radiate Jesus, you can expect a reaction. You don't have to look very far to see that today. The Christian Institute, for example, have advised more than 30 Christian couples whose applications to foster or adopt um, children were delayed or blocked when social workers questioned aspects of their Christian faith. Earlier this year, a school chaplain was reported to anti-terrorism and sacked because he challenged the ideology behind much of the LGBTI activism today. Now, he clearly stated that same-sex attracted people and those struggling with gender dysphoria should not be discriminated against because they are made in the image of God. But he told students, you don't have to accept the ideas and ideologies of LGBTI activists where they're in con conflict with Christian values. So it was a balanced presentation, and he was reported to anti-terrorism. If you don't keep up with our culture's values, which frankly seem to shift at great speed all the time, you may well be cast out. The more we represent Jesus, the more we radiate his light, um, the more um, it may well bring confrontation with some as well as providing sight for others. Now, what might that look like for us in these times? Well, it's very tempting to say um, that the answer is, is just 
evangelism, more evangelism, i.e. we should all get up and go and tell people about Jesus. But the truth is, I think this passage provides a richer and deeper picture of Christian witness, which is first grounded in Christian discipleship. You see, the man born blind is only able to say as much as he knows and has experienced of Jesus. In verse 11, he says to his neighbors, the man they call Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. He doesn't have all the answers. Jesus didn't send the man out with a script. Rather, Jesus simply sent the healed man back into his community as a living, embodied testimony of what God has come to bring. Of course, as he grows in his sight, the man is able to give more of an answer for his faith. But his confidence throughout is not in his ability or his answers in evangelism, his his script. It remains solely in Jesus Christ. He's the focus. So this passage is not about getting us to do more evangelism. It's about Christ and our vision of him. Even though he doesn't appear in person in this passage, Jesus is there in his disciple, the man born blind. The man is a model for us of how we will increasingly radiate Jesus to the world the more we grow in him. That's why the Christian life involves more than just our outward-facing activities. If we're solely focused on our outward-facing activities, it's exhausting because we're limited and we've, got, we've only got so much to give. Instead, like the man, it is as we become recipients of Jesus that we are empowered to represent him. So don't underestimate the value of worship uh, 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 as a church. You know, as we gather like this, especially on a day like today when there's so much going on around us with COVID and and everything else, it seems really ordinary, doesn't it? I mean, we've got rows literally with signs saying not in use on them. But each time we gather, as we receive the Lord's word, we are enacting the gospel and that's powerful because it recenters our vision on Christ away from ourselves, away from other people. It helps us to see, to see more clearly. And it's a powerful witness, too, because our gathering is a declaration to the world around us that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's our Savior. He's our authority. Not the court of public opinion, not secularism, not any rival ideology. Sadly, that's very much in contrast with what the Bishop of Liverpool said last week. You may have seen it in the news. Um, The world, where he sort of advocated for the world to set the agenda for the church, using those very words. We can't do that because the church belongs to Christ. Of course, as we've seen, confessing the lordship of Christ may well bring opposition and difficulties even within the church itself. So why on earth is it worth it? Well, here's another teaser, because we'll have to wait until next week uh, to see why. But I I do want to leave you with a taste of it in verse 34 um, and um, verse 35. So verse 34 again. To this they replied, 
You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. What are the very next words in verse 35? Jesus heard. The man is excluded and shamed, cut off from his community. But Jesus has not disappeared. Jesus hears. He knows. He sees. And he's there waiting for the man on the outside. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for your work in in the man born blind and in all of us like him, needy, helpless, those who cannot give ourselves sight. We praise you for your grace. Thank you for um, lavishing on us um, the... Um, the gift of of sight. And we pray, Lord, that you would grow in us um, the ability to see more and more of what we are like in our sin, but also uh, more and more of what you are like. And we pray that that would enrich us and grow us as your disciples. And please, would that be a powerful witness to the world around us? Would that enable us to Um, to speak with the same confidence and boldness as the man born blind in whatever situations we face. Thank you for your care of him uh, progressing through this passage. Thank you for your care of us from young until old in our church, from those new to the faith and those who have been following you for a long time. Lord, we ask that you would um, continue to nurture us and, um, uh, and grow us. We ask this for your glory and uh, the glory of the gospel uh, going into the world. Amen. I was once blind, but now I see. The words of the man born blind are contained in uh, this hymn of response, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So if you're here in the building, feel free to stand. In fact, if you're at home, why not stand? It's up to you. Um, but do, do stand as uh, Nicholas sings it to us and, and Annabelle plays and join in at home.